Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here with Keith Townsend. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. My pleasure to introduce Glenn Schock, VP of Alliances for Panzura. So, Glenn, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what Panzura is all about? Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. Um, again, Glenn Schock, VP of Alliances over at Panzura. I've been in the storage industry for 20 plus years at various companies. My kind of gray beard kind of guy. Exactly. EMC and Oracle and a few other stops and startups here and there. And um, now I've joined Panzura a little under a year ago, um, and it, it's been an amazing ride at this company. Um, Panzura itself is a next generation NAS company um, that kind of decouples the filer head from the backend storage. So we install on premises as well as in any of the clouds or in all of the marketplaces. Um, and we use any S3 compatible backend um, object store as our storage device, which means that we can use um, GCS over Google or Azure Blob or obviously Amazon S3. And we're also compatible with some on-premises um, hardware like IBM Cause and Cloudian. Uh, so what that enables you to have is a global file system um, in any location that you have, as well as in the cloud, um, and when you make it available in the cloud, uh, you make your unstructured data available to all the cloud native applications. So you get all of that capability on your company's unstructured data set. Yeah, it brings up a whole slew of questions. Yeah, there. I'm sure. <laughs> so if it's sitting on S3, for instance, and I'm accessing it, do I access it with when I'm in the cloud, do I access it through Panzura or do I access it directly through S, you know, just through Amazon S3 services? Obviously, when I'm sitting in on prem and I'm trying to access the data, I'm accessing it through Panzura, and that and that would be an appliance sitting on prem, and it would be one appliance or multiple, and then high availability types of things. And oh wow, I didn't bring a pen and paper for the, the questions. I'll try to remember them. Okay, so here we go. Um, so we do install in a VM on-premises and in the cloud. So um, we install via um, Hyper-V or VMDK, so VMware or Microsoft, depending on your favorite um, hypervisor choice, onto standard um, HCI gear or server, whatever. We need CPU, memory, and some local disk resource on-premises. In the cloud, we also install in a VM of sorts, depending on the shape that you want to configure us for based on the workload. So Imagine if you're migrating applications into the cloud, one of the hardest things to do is take one application and move it to the cloud um, from your data center because you don't know what dependencies that application has on other applications in the data center. And when I worked at Oracle and our, our customers started moving to um, Oracle Cloud, um, one of the biggest problems was they would move like JDE and then forget that JDE was dependent on 30 applications that are still left in a data center high latency, call that a failed migration, move back into the data center and said cloud sucked, right? Um, well, the great thing about Panzer is if you're running um, the global file system on premises and your data centers, as well as in a VM in the cloud, you move one application over, that application can still access via SMB or NFS, the entire global file system. 
So, and the way that our filer works is it does local caching, intelligent prefetching, block delta moves. So every IO feels local to that app that's sitting in the cloud. And that's how our customers are using us, or one of the ways our customers are using us is slow migrations into the cloud and making all their data set available in all locations. It also enables cloud native folks to go multi-cloud and have the same data set available. Yeah. So I'm sitting here, I've got an on-prem NAS filer, old traditional ancient iron kind of thing. And I decided I want to move to the cloud. I start, I, I fire up this Panzura VM effectively and then connect it to some cloud storage someplace in the world. And then I start moving files from the old filer to the new filer. And all of a sudden I'm cloud native. And all of a sudden you can be cloud native, right? So let's say that, and that's our primary target is um, NetApp and Isilon basically refreshes. So let's say you have an old NetApp and you want, you know, your CIO or whatever says, okay, we want to start using the cloud and we want to get out of the data center business. So what you do is you put a Panzer filer on premises, run it again in a VMDK. You, we, we help you, our professional services organization will help you migrate off of that NetApp at, onto Panzura. Let's say that your favorite cloud provider is AWS. So your backend object store will be S3 um, sitting, let's say you call it um, US East. And the great thing about that in using that object store on the backend is that it's three-way replicated. You can also replicate one outside the region in case the entire region goes down. So you have basically inherent offsiting, you have inherent remote replication. Um, and now let's say that you want to, and this is the fun part, use Google for analytics. You can actually install Panzura in a VM in Google, connect it to the S3 object store, if that's what you wanted to do, um, and run analytics on that data set, right? Using and have cloud native applications such as cloud functions or do an ingest from unstructured into structured into BigQuery. Um, and that's the joy of this is it kind of democratizes your data. It makes your data available um, to all the clouds, um, to all the cloud native apps. You know, I... S3 is, is, is interesting and all that, and it's, and it, but it costs. It doesn't cost to ingest, but it costs to egress. So is there something that you guys do to try to minimize the egress um, cost for some, some of those data? So I'm, you know, I'm reading and writing data on-prem. Uh, so how does that play out, I guess? Good question. So um, we have really intelligent block moves on the back end. Um, and we cache locally. So as you know, you've been in the storage industry for a minute or two, um, most NAS data, right? So if you're talking about 100% um, of the NAS data a company's built up over 20 years, 95% of that is old, right? It, it's not moving around very much. At the edges, um, that you got kind of like 5% hot, right? Everybody uses the same data set, the hot data at the edge. And we cache at the edge. So depending on the workload our customers have, we cache at the edge between half a percent to a percent and a half of, of data. So when I came on board, that was actually one of my questions is what do the egress fees look like here? Um, and they're amazingly small because again, if you have five sites installed, you have five caches at the edge, all the data at the edge is what's kind of local. Um, and we only do block Delta moves. So let's say that I have a PowerPoint file that I uploaded in the global file system in San Francisco. Somebody opens it up for New York. 
it edits it for a minute. Um, and then now I want to open it up in San Francisco again for read and write. The only thing I'm going to open up and only thing I'm going to take out of the cloud at all is maybe uh, just whatever edits they made. And in that case, the only time that would actually happen is when the edits were large enough not to be moved with the lock. So our Panzera filers communicate with each other out of band, right? Just over the network. Uh, and they request locks from one another. And if let's say I only made 8K worth of changes, let's say a graphic change in New York, it's going to actually move that graphic change out of band. So it's the data what, that the Panzer... What? 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 Right. What do you it's... mean you're moving the data out of band? You... Well, it commits it to the object store. So the the commit happened to the backend object store, but because you're only like 8K away from like the whole file, it's going to say, hey, here's the lock and here's the difference between my version and your version. And that's it. Now you're up to date and you have the current version of the file. Um, what's also awesome is all of our backend is immutable, right? So all of our writes um, are additive, even deletes are additive information to the backend object store. So we're inherently immune to ransomware, right? So anytime you change a file, it's just more and more information. So if ransomware hits your company, all that means to us is new encrypted files. Yeah, it's just new encrypted files, which our system can detect and start shutting down the devices that are causing that um, and say, hey, this is crazy. And tell the administrator, maybe you guys should you know, take a minute. Um, but more importantly, you can revert to the previous version of that file before it was encrypted. So we're very proud to say that while a bunch of our customers have been hit with ransomware, None of them have paid a ransom on data sitting on a Panzera filer. They've all been able to revert and recover um, painlessly. So it's almost like continuous data protection. You're 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 versioning every block update to a, a file on, on a backend of Panzera. Yeah. So yeah, that, which is why we separate the metadata from the data and the filers in constant communication with one another. Um, we do back up the metadata, obviously, to the backend object store. Um, so any filer can recover itself um, without any issues. But yeah, everything is a constant change and update. Um, and then we also have a capability of secure erase. So let's say your company has a um, policy that after seven years, um, data gets deleted, right? Um, just for legal hold or whatever. Uh, we can basically remove all the snaps and remove all the everything, update everything for up to seven years and then erase everything um, prior to that um, so that we keep the retention time that the company wants to set. So let's take a step back. The, as this, this use case of kind of transitioning off of a traditional SAN or HCI stack or whatever model you had inside of your data center to a more virtual instance. Obviously, the dynamics between a uh, EMC VNX with a 10 gig connection, SSDs, blah, 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 going to, from that to a VMDK is going to be a different profile in performance and accessibility, et cetera. What is the customer experience in making that transition? Right. So we, our competition, it, we're not SAN, right? So we're not Block, we're, we're NAS. So it, but it's the same case, right? You know, a massive, NAT, a massive NetApp or a massive Isilon um, performance-wise compared to us. Um, so that's a completely legit question. 
Um, and again, what we're finding is um, technology has allowed the company to catch up. Um, I think Panzura uh, is something like 12 years old as a company. Um, and they were honestly too early to a market um, because the performance of local devices wasn't there, the network performance wasn't there, and the cloud wasn't there. Um, but the great thing about Panzura today it's is all come back. <laughs> yeah, everything is there, right? Like a one gig, uh, one gig line to the internet um, costs you almost nothing, um, as well as really high performance VMs, right? I mean, you can buy some Nutanix gear that blows away um, the front end of a NetApp or an Isilon because they're making specialized hardware to do NAS, whereas we're using general purpose machinery that has crazy fast processors, really quick memory. Um, and then we also use NVMe locally as our cache. And we use that as a cache for our metadata, which makes our metadata operations quite fast. Um, and we also use it as a cache for the hot data that's sitting at the edge. So we're not going, let's say that you're using a file at the edge, you know, on premises somewhere. We're not going constantly back to the object store that could be sitting a thousand miles away. You're doing the majority of your I.O. at the cached edge of the appliance. And then we only ship deltas to commit. We only ship deltas to the back end. And then to extract data, we only ship deltas. So we have this neat collaboration feature that allows you to be um, byte range locking. So for Adobe Premiere and um, Revit, Civil 3, AutoCAD, all that, you can have the same file open in multiple locations for collaboration, for read and for write. Um, which makes us really popular in the AEC or architecture, engineering, construction space, as well as M&E, uh, media entertainment space. But byte we don't range, have to, byte yeah, range, byte range locking, locking on files? Yes. And the thing is, this is supported in the application. So we have to support it in our file system, but Adobe Premiere specifically supports it. Revit, um, Civil 3D, all these AutoCAD, they all specifically support having multiple writers to the same file as long as it's in a different byte range. So you only lock a specific byte range of the file. This is um, bizarre. Yeah, it's yeah, neat. I, I, can, I can easily, you know, I'm a content creator, so I can easily see the, the, the use case for this if I'm in Final Cut. And, and this, is a, this is a serious problem for me uh, as a video editor and creator. If, you know, we're now in the virtual world and if I'm working on a project, and it's a, let's say it's an hour long video and I want to do, you know, I want to edit the introduction and then somebody else is uh, editing the talking head bits of it. And then yet a third person is editing the, the, the outro or, the something, outro right? or something like that. Uh, I can't, I, when I'm can't not, be done. you can't do it today. <laughs> well, no, I can, well, I can't do it remotely. I can do it if we're all on the same local network. And we're uh, hitting the same NAS. Those uh, uh, Final Cut and Adobe and all that supports that. But uh, doing it over a wide area network, that's where, you know, it starts to get interesting and complicated uh, because we're not connected. You know, you're not going to try and do this over VPN uh, uh, for the most part. So there's the, there's the latency part of it, but there's also the interesting point that, uh, that this is backed in by uh, S3, which isn't, uh, or object storage, which isn't block addressable. Uh, and it's big objects, and we're doing that translation at this VMDK level. is really, really interesting technology. 
Yeah, and we have customers um, jointly with WorkSpot, the um, VDI company, that do exactly that live, right? So we put ourselves, uh, we put a Panzerow filer in the same data center as uh, the WorkSpot VDI and the company. Everybody goes in through VDI and simul all across the world and simultaneously edits the same files. So you don't have to have a powerful PC in front of you or a Mac. Um, you're basically going in through VDI using the power of their machines and then using the power of Panzura that is in various data centers um, and editing the same files in real time. Um, and that's through for the AEC space. So there's 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 significant challenges in doing this sort of stuff with object storage. I mean, and and Keith mentioned one that you know it's number one is not by addressable, right? You got this huge multi gigabyte or multi well yeah maybe fifty or, or sixty gigabytes of, of video, and you know got four or five people trying to access bits and parts of it and editing it. So there, there's that aspect of it. Here's the eventual consistency thing with with S3. So yeah, as you probably know, eventual consistency says that if you know if I do a write and somebody else does a write to the same object, it's not necessarily going to be this. It's it's not necessarily going to work very well because it's only eventually consistent. Right, but our filers take care of exactly that. First of all, you're not doing object I/O. Right, you're doing either SMB or NFS. I, I understand that, but there's object IO behind it, right? <laughs> yes, but there's caching in front of it. And we only ship, um, we do 32 times 128 KIO to the back end. So we're caching it um, and we're caching it on NVMEs, which is non volatile. Um, so that, you know, in case of downtime or whatever happens, but we're caching it and then committing. And when we're doing simultaneous uh, byte range locking, um, you can see the I.O. between all of our Panzer of filers gets really, really chatty, right? So our Panzer of filers are talking to each other about who's got what byte range in real time. And they're not going to unlock that byte range until we are 100% positive that the commit's done and the lock is released. Our locking is very conservative. Um, that's one of the things that I tested really a lot before joining the company, because again, storage 20 years, I've watched a bunch of people try to create global file systems and they've all failed. They've all failed because of data corruption. They tried to balance super high performance with global file system, and it doesn't balance out really well. One of the great things about Panzura is the locking is even at the collaboration side is very conservative. Right. There is a strict communication between the filers. A lock is not released until all the commits are done. And we know that it is releasable. Um, so that's why, again, we're so popular in that space for collaboration, specifically because of the conservative locking. We also have massive customers. Um, we actually just uh, signed as of May 1st. We're going live with an MSP in New Zealand, New Zealand's telecom um, CCL. Um, is using us for global file system as a service. Um, all the New Zealand government will probably be on us, um, slowly migrating off of their previous service. And the kind of testing that they did out there um, was ridiculous. Third-party penetration tests, exactly. Um, can Let's force a corruption. Let's do a split brain scenario. Let's do everything we can do to kind of force a corruption in a global file system. And I mean... Trust me, this has taken seven or eight months, um, but we passed everything um, and we're, we're finally going live. So 
Yeah, so talk to me a little bit. So there's lots of, I'll call it, out-of-band communication going on. You mentioned locking. You mentioned, you even mentioned that block updates would actually trans, you know, be transmitted out-of-band. Not, yeah, yeah, you're committing it to the cloud, but you're actually doing some, it's almost cash-to-cash coherency going on between Panzera VMDKs or something, right? Yeah, at the metadata level. That's exactly right. We always say that we separate the metadata from the data. So our filers talk metadata to one another and they commit data to the backend object stores. So, and then we back, kind of back up our metadata to the backend object stores as well in real time. Um, but the metadata communication happens within what we call our filer ring uh, so that we ensure that every filer is kept constantly consistent. There is no one master filer that has all of the metadata because that would basically create a single point of failure even if it was a backup um, a lot of our competition does that in the cloud uh, i'm not going to name them but they basically say okay we're gonna you have to have connectivity to the cloud to talk to this master lock server um, and that's the the server that has all the information with us all of our filers in real time are constantly updated um, for metadata and that's because wan connections are cheap Right, we're not we're not doing egress from the cloud. We're just doing filer to filer communication over WAN links that are very inexpensive right now. So let's talk about one of the more practical problems that are that's less technical, but uh, technology helps to ease some of the transition, which is namespaces. It's great to have a global namespace, but this is a problem that I've tried to tackle the past fifteen years of my career in large enterprises and it is not a, it's not, I mean, going back to the beginning of uh, Active Directory and, and being able to have a single directory space in Active Directory and you're doing it via simple SMB sharing. Not a new concept, everyone wants it, but for obvious reasons we uh, went earlier in this podcast, it's really difficult from a metadata, SMB, blah, blah, blah. One of the other challenges that I've run into when trying to implement global namespace, regardless of the technology, is adoption. Like we put the global namespace out there to be consumed and developers, and we'll use the term developer generically because it's not just developers, it's end users too. Developers simply don't use them. They just revert to the what the what have you seen has been either a carrot and a stick or a great motivator to get folks to actually adopt Panzur so that, you know, you guys get the follow-on contract and license. So they continue to use the old share name, for instance? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So simply use the old share name. I mean, something as simple as getting someone to change a share name in an Excel spreadsheet. I mean, this is real. I mean, the the business <laughs> is ran on an Excel. <laughs> the yeah, he's not wrong. Um, our number one competition is human nature. Um, and people don't like to change. Um, so we always say like, well, we have technical competition out there from a data sheet standpoint um, in all the traditional vendors, as uh, NAS vendors, as well as some of the new ones that are coming up. But none of that's really our competition. Our competition is human nature, right? And their willingness to change. And what we're finding is um, some of our customers are bottoms up and some of our customers are top down. Um, and you just have to, depends on who you're talking to. So if you're talking at the C level, um, it, it's cost, right? I have, um, and I'm a math guy. I, I built a TCO calculator that we have that shows that after three sites, 
we're going to be about a third. Um, so basically you're replacing three net ups, let's say at three different sites, we're going to be a third, the total cost of ownership of traditional NAS. Once you get to like five to 10 sites, we're a quarter to a fifth, the total cost of ownership. And that's because of global deduplication, encryption, dedupe, you know, you're basically centralizing every, centralizing everything. You're, um, you don't have to do backups because everything is immutable. Um, and it's inherently offsited and it's inherently through a replicated. And now we support cloud mirroring, which if you don't trust Google, you can mirror to AWS or the other way around or to Microsoft. So that if, you know, the entire, you know, cloud vendor goes down, um, like ha which has happened, you can base our filers will auto, will, they'll vote and automatically revert to, um, the secondary object store, um, so that's a top-down approach of like, look, you know, you're paying way too much for using technology that's 20 years old. Um, but then there's there always there's always the early adopters, right, at the at the bottom that say, wow, we, we've tested this thing, and it works. Um, and yeah, we're gonna have to do some process changes. But and this is appealing to the techie, really. Once we show them that you can also put a, a, a VM into AWS or in Google, and then have cloud native services attack the data. And I'm not going to mention a customer, but like, think of like one of the stodgiest organizations ever. Um, and they have a ton of security data and they had to do COVID tracing. Um, Federal with, government, for instance. <laughs> uh, let's call it a stodgy organization. And they have to do COVID tracing. Um, and you know, they, all the security cameras go, of course, to the local NAS as they always have. Um, and it's stuck there. Um, and then they had to figure do facial recognition, which there's no way they could do it locally. Um, and then track if two people, um, crossed paths, um, and it, everything would have had to have been implemented locally, right? They were talking about implementing massive amounts of hardware at every location to be able to do something like this. And by the way, buy very expensive software. You know who, who has facial recognition? Every, or computer, otherwise known as computer vision? Every cloud vendor. It's available, it's pre-written. Wouldn't it be nice if you just put a VM in the cloud, make all that unstructured data available um, from all of your sites to one cloud vendor who can then do computer vision on all of your cameras with no hardware investment, with no commitment, with no contract, shut it down at any time and only bring it up when you're actually worried, right? When they say, oh, well, maybe these two people cross paths in this location, let's check. That's when you bring up that entire environment. So you're only paying for that environment when you need it. That's the game changer at the techie level, right? They go, wow. We don't have to buy anything. We can rent it and only do it when we need to. And all we have to do is move off of our stodgy old stuff onto this new stuff, which if we're only receiving, you know, video, it's not impactful, right? Um, for, you know, they're not changing their entire environment. They're just doing one thing. Um, and then they start looking at it for other things. They go, wow, this thing worked. Can we do this over here? And maybe that over there. Um, and then they upsell themselves. Um, so it's just a different angle of approach, depending on who you're talking to. And those people, the techies don't care about cost, right? They just care about, does it work? Can I solve the problem? And the costs are, you know, above their heads. Glenn, you mentioned a couple of things in that little spiel. One was uh, cloud mirroring and, and voting filers. So if I understand what you're saying, I could mirror my, let's say, S3 object store that's behind Panzura to, you know, Azure blob storage or Google storage. and then. Uh, I would point my filers to both mirrors, let's say, 
And then if one happens to go down, they would automatically, number one, they're committing to both all the time. And number two, if, if one mirror went down, they'd go off to the other one automatically. Correct. Um, so the cloud mirroring is basically a right splitting technology at every one of the filers. So yeah, 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 I know. Um, I'm explaining it to your audience. <laughs> so like it's a right splitting technology um, at the filer. So yeah, it's doing commits to both backend object stores simultaneously. Um, and then we don't want to split brain scenario again. So all the filers basically have to agree that they can't get to, or the majority of the filers have to agree that they cannot get to the primary object store, uh, but they can all get to the secondary one. Um, and then the file system basically um, is now reading and writing um, from the second one or to the second one uh, until the primary goes down. Oh, sorry, it goes back up. If the primary goes back up, then um, basically that's when the administrator has to come in and say, we want to revert back to the to the primary, um, you know, make sure that it's updated uh, and then everybody move over. So the fail back has to be into the, the failover can be automatic. The fail back is much more um, manual. Yeah. It needs to be right. Because you know, somebody needs to make that decision. Uh, they just can't willy nilly go back and forth. And there's data that has to be transferred to, to update the old storage and stuff like that. So it, it, there's, there's work to be done here. And yeah. it's, it's nice if it's automated, but it has to be triggered through some sort of operator intervention of some type. Yeah, I mean the 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 filers will once they can all reach the pri the old primary, they will update it. Um, they will move the deltas, um, but then that fail back. You know, th there has to be some intelligence there. Our filers are intelligent, but at some point, you can't trust technology. And you also mentioned that there was no need for backups. I'm not sure I'd agree completely with that. I <laughs> understand, you know, triply redundant with one out of region version, and then having cloud mirroring across that. You now have almost five different copies of the data. But the challenge is, and you know, if if the system dies, or there's a system bug, or something like that, or somehow, you know, God forbid, something happens to securely, you know, in, in infect your your filer or something like that, the, there's just a, there's still a need for backup here. Don't, wouldn't you agree? It that is a bridge too far for some people, um, and so again, we are entirely immutable, uh, so we you can't change anything. Yeah, but your immutability is, is dependent upon your system structure and system logic and all that stuff. And your system is corrupted. It's potentially possible that your immutability is corrupted as well. So we tell our customers, and I mean, like flat out, the, the customers right now that we have um, that do backups are folks that have like a cloudy and on-premises as well as um, our our filer on-premises and so there's no off-siting and there's you know it, it's immutable but it's not off-sited so they do backups for off-siting um, new customers that come on board they understand it um, but they don't believe it uh, and then they do their backups they go through their you know they go through the machinations um, and they find out that they're never using recovery from backups um, so they, because we, impl uh, we integrate with like VSS, so you can kind of right click, go on properties, choose your version of the file that you want to recover, or from the admin panel, you can basically recreate the file system someplace else, in a, you know, another bucket if you wanted to, um, so that they find that like, okay, we're going, we're doing this, we're doing the old way, but we are never using it at no point in time do our customers. So oh, we need to recover from this backup. Um, so then they go, okay, we're going to stop this stupid incremental forever thing. Um, and, you know, do, 
And now we still don't trust you guys. So we'll do a backup, a full backup once a month and just offsite that. Um, and then they go, well, maybe not once every six months because we're never using this stuff and we have to do it. Right. So the, the, the trust has to be earned. Um, and yeah, I'm never going to argue with anybody who's like, no, you must stop your back. You can do whatever you want. It's America. But, um, it, over a time they find that like, okay, this is a waste of time and money. So let's back off. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I'm, yeah. The, the, a lot of customers still do at least a once a year or once every month or once every <laughs> six months, they'll, they'll like push something off site. I think that the, the, the problem or the the mind shift is that the back end is very different. And, and I have the, I have the advantage of talking to Panzer the past few years as either an analyst or a potential customer. Some of the questions that I've asked around this topic is just that. So, you know, when you're thinking about backing up object storage, because at the end of the day, the two components you need to back up is the object storage and the metadata system that, that, does the translation from object to uh, SMB or NFS or the, the NAS. And if I have, and so I have to ask my, myself the question, what is my backup solution for object period? Because I'm not necessarily backing up uh, the NAS file system uh, in itself, I'm backing up object. And that is a very different approach than what we do to NAS storage on-prem. So the backup policy is very uh, similar to what I would do in AWS. I might do site-to-site -site replication, et cetera, et cetera, but, I, but pure, you know, like going to tape or going to some archive medium, that becomes a questionable uh, aspect. The one, because I do have version control over the metadata, Etc. Etc. So I have the, the tools in my cloud platform to do versioning of the metadata, which is essentially what I was doing in my backup solution on prem. Yeah. Listen, I, you know, I'm an old kind of guy. I have Time Machine on the Mac. I've used it for the last decade <laughs> or so, and I've never gone to any of my backups. But on top of that, I do a weekly backup to a separate disk. I do a monthly backup, which I store in a safety deposit box. Have I ever had to access any of these? No. But <laughs> You know, I just, it's just, it's, it, you can't tell me, I, you can't tell me it's not worthwhile to back up. I do the same thing. Uh, the, the only reason I have my airport extreme on my network, cause I have Eero now is that I have, because of time machine that I, I'm like, I have that thing on a defibrillator. Right. And it's just, it's amazing. It works great. I do everything that you just said. I off and then I do a one time a year. I just back it up. Cause that's all my family photos and stuff. And I keep, and I keep a gun under my, my pillow. So <laughs> it's just like, I, I'm, I'm with you. Right. It's just like, all of that is true, which is why I never argue with that. It's like, look, this is what the technology gives you. This is what you can do, but you have to get to it yourself. Um, you know, like uh, granted a lot of our TCO savings come from, you don't have to do backups or at least you can step back or choose a different technology for doing backups. That's less expensive, right? Back us up the time machine. I don't care, but, um, you don't have to go the full data domain and remote replicate data domain and, you know, have two weeks on premises and all that, because we do that for you. So why not just take a full every month and push it somewhere cheap? Um, and granted your RPO or RTO isn't that great with that, but we're giving you the RPO and RTO locally. Right, right, right. So, so, 
All right, so next question, Glenn. So what about size of file systems and stuff like that? If we're talking you know, object storage, typically petabytes kind of, can you, I mean, how many files can you handle? Can you have a 10 billion files, a trillion files? How many directories, those sorts of numbers, you know? Yeah, we don't run out. We're basically a ZFS on the back end. So you're a storage tech guy. You like it's it's a uh, on the back end, right? So a lot of the technology we've incorporated from ZFS. Um, so we really don't run out of files and all that. Now, granted, because we keep adding, because um, we're immutable, so we have a lot of metadata. Um, and what we will do with larger customers, um, and by larger, I, I mean like 10, 20 petabyte plus is say, look, I know you guys love the global file system, um, but it's time to maybe make two global file systems, an archive and a primary. Um, and so like where your hot data and stuff that's in the last year, let's say will be in the primary ring. Um, and then everything else. Um, can be in a secondary ring, and all that means is you're you're mounting two drive letters at that point. Um, you're you're not getting the global dedupe, um, but in theory, the new data is not really going to dedupe with the old data. Um, and at the end of the day, object storage is cheap. So if we find that we're in the multi tens of petabyte space uh, with customers, um, and the metadata is growing too large, where even NVMe is taking a minute to to figure it out we'll ask them to split it up. Um, and you're talking about outliers for customers because, I mean, if you think about, you know, how many customers have 40 petabytes of NAS globally, besides it's Keith? not a lot. <laughs> well, he said he's using Final Cut Pro, so yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, putting all that stuff yeah, in but, the but, RV but, must but, be but, but, but to give context, I'm coming from a... Uh, pharma background yeah, even where, worse uh, genomic data and you know this stuff is you know it's 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 petabytes at each site and making it accessible the the metadata challenge alone is big enough so indexing and then making uh helping scientists understand where the data is at even if you know i can't reasonably move it within you know a, a, a day or two period of time and if i have to uh, send a snowball or whatever, I can identify if I have the data or if I need to have the data recreated or created in the first place. So when you're talking about drug discovery and I have a set of genomic data sitting at a site that is critical to my drug discovery process and I don't know that it exists is a big problem whether or not i can access it remotely or not is not is, is less of an issue knowing that the data actually exists that's too funny i was just talking to a prospect in the last month um, a giant hospital with exactly that situation where um, they have 40 petabytes worth of data and um, the, the the guy that runs it all is like look my researchers they're paranoid i can't put this stuff on glacier because that's what he's been doing, right? He's been, and it's not immediately available. If they can't see it, if they can't touch it, they start freaking out. So we need to make everything available online instantaneously um, because they can go back to this stuff. They usually don't, but if they can't see it, they freak out. Um, so that, those are the types of problems that we're trying to solve. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So Glenn, how is this thing sort of charged for? Is it charged for by filer or... or data data managed or, or uh, 
obviously you charge something for the thing, right? No, we're altruistic. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we charge based on managed capacity minus all of the snapshotting capacity overhead that, that we do. So actually um, primary so, storage kind of thing would be the, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we don't actually charge for mirroring either, which I, I feel is bad business. As far as the object storage is concerned, is that separately charged to the customer then? Correct. So right you. now you're paying your, you know, two cents a gig per month to pick your favorite vendor, um, or, you know, whatever contract you have. Uh, and then you're, it, what we're finding is our customers are paying for more capacity on the back end than they're paying for us capacity wise on the front end. Because again, we don't charge Snaps for snapshots. We don't charge for mirroring. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So we're not really worried about that. Um, and the way I talk, I talk about us is like, we're basically a toll road. Um, we're infrastructure. We're not interesting. Um, the interesting thing is the stuff that you can do with it once your infrastructure is built. Um, you know, all the cloud native services in the cloud, all the global file system stuff, the collaboration. Um, but yeah, we're, we're charging for capacity effectively just being a toll road. And we're almost out of time here, but there's a couple of questions with respect to other options or other products that you guys offer. I was on your website and there seems like there's more than just a global file system, right? Right. So we also have Cloud Block Store, um, which is a Kubernetes PV, basically. So we are Kubernetes um, storage. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you want, it is also effectively a little global file system. Um, and uh, if, but it's super widely scalable. So it scales based on cache hits. Um, so if you have a high performance requirement in the Kubernetes space, such as media entertainment or genomics, research, stuff like that. It is a crazy, crazy fast um, PV that can be made available to as many devices um, uh, that need it in real time. Uh, and it adds another container once it, you know, it's not getting the cache hits that you set and it keeps adding and adding and adding and growing sideways um, until you're getting the, the performance that you want. Uh, and then it collapses itself down once you're done doing the So thing. it automatically scales up and scales down the mini filers per se that are doing this persistent volume support? Exactly, yep. Uh, that's interesting. That's we unfortunately launched it at a bad time during COVID because this, is a, this is, has to be ground floor marketing. You kind of have to market this to the nerds. Um, and, but we will be doing KubeCon um, I think that's going to be live in LA in October. Uh, so we have to get out there right now. It's in GKE only, um, in, in Google only, we're going to have it in AWS as well. Um, because what we're finding is, you know, again, they have 75% of the market. So we have to we have to go with the big boys. Um, so we're doing that. And we're also, like I mentioned, where we launched our first global file system as a service offering in New Zealand with CCL. Um, but that's our future to be quite honest. Um, that, at least that's what I feel. I'm not going to speak for the rest of my executives. Um, but putting global file system, making it available in the cloud, if you think about it, there's a lot of companies going fully cloud native. Um, and But by cloud native, they're not going to be 100% Google or Amazon or Microsoft. They want to use the best of breed for all three. Wouldn't it be nice if all of your applications and all the clouds had access to the same data set? Google, Amazon, and Microsoft aren't going to make that. They're not going to acknowledge the existence of the other cloud vendors. So Panzura is coming in and going, hey, we can offer global file system as a service in all three, be in all three marketplaces. And that's what you're going to see coming from us going forward. 
is basically making Panzura as a service in the marketplaces and just charging, you know, dollars per gig per month or, you know, cents per gig per month um, for simultaneous access across the clouds. Um, and that's where, you know, everything as a service, right? It's, you're going from, uh, you know, cars and RVs and all the things are basically rentable by the minute now. Mm, 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 mm. All right. Uh, so Keith, any last questions for Glenn? No, no questions for me. It's been a great conversation. Hey, Glenn. Yeah, this is awesome. Glenn, anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close? No, this is this has been fantastic. I love the back and forth, um, and this has been a great experience. Thank you. All right. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much, Glenn, for being on our show today. No worries. Thank you. That's it for now. Bye, Keith. Bye, Ray. And bye, Glenn. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out.